important. Well, I want to thank Steve for the opportunity to bring God's Word to you this morning, particularly on this piece of the Apostles' Creed. And of course, as you know, uh, if you've been coming, uh, Steve has been doing a series on the Apostles' Creed, uh, which is very fitting for this time of year of Lent. Uh, originally, the Apostles' Creed was thought to be an instruction uh, for people who were preparing for baptism. And often in the early church, uh, baptisms were done on Easter Sunday, certainly other times as well, but especially Easter was a celebration of the resurrection of new life. So people were prepared for baptism. Uh, we, of course, do similar uh, efforts here in the Methodist Church and at Faith Westwood. We have confirmation for young people uh, in preparation for church membership, but they are baptized prior to that. Uh, but we also have classes in baptism and membership here. Uh, we have been uh, focusing on the different parts of the Apostles' Creed uh, in preparation for Easter. I just want to say that the Apostles' Creed is unique in a couple ways. One is that it's probably the earliest written creed that we find uh, in the life of the church and in church history. Uh, there are other creedal statements that are in the scriptures, but this complete creed is probably the earliest that we can find in the church history. Um, and it differs uh, in another way from subsequent creeds. Uh, for instance, the Nicene Creed, uh, which was developed as not only a statement of faith, but also a correction to heresy or mistakes that were being made about what it was to be a Christian and what it was to believe in Jesus Christ. So today we're going to be focusing on one small piece uh, of the, the creed, which says, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Now before we do that, I'd like you to stand with me, and I would like for you to recite with me the entire creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Many churches, uh, and most uh, mainline churches and evangelical churches, uh, profess some form of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, my wife is uh, a Greek Orthodox Christian taking its roots back to the very early church. 
and in the sanctuary of the Greek church, St. John the Baptist, on the right of the altar uh, is a tapestry with the Apostles' Creed on it. Uh, I heard about a young pastor, Lutheran pastor, serving his first church in a, in a rural area. First Sunday, he has the congregation stand to recite the Apostles' Creed. And to his amazement, the entire congregation turned around and faced the back wall. There was nothing back there, but they did, and they recited the Apostles' Creed. They didn't understand what that was about until after the service. He was told that when the church was originally built, that the Apostles' Creed was posted on the back wall of the church. And they didn't have programs, so everybody turned around and read it off the wall. It wasn't any longer there. But it's important to understand when we profess creeds that it isn't about some kind of rote memorization or some rote profession. It, it has meaning. It is a statement of what we believe about God and what we believe about the church and how that affects our life in the world. I believe in the Holy Spirit. The first three parts of the creed affirm what we call the Trinity. Uh, which basically is unique to the Christian faith, saying that we believe in one God, but in three persons. We could spend a lot of time talking about that, uh, and you probably wouldn't be real clear on it, because it remains a mystery. It remains something that we can sort of grasp, but that is difficult sometimes for us to understand. I'm really grateful, Steve, that you gave me a text to preach from. Because this subject is so broad, we could go so many places with this, that it's real helpful to have some focus. Now, it'll also get you out of here quicker, which is great. Uh, when, I was a, when I was a kid, I was in a church where you never knew when the Sunday service was going to end. It ended when the preacher was done preaching and people were done praying at the altar. And that could go on and on. And I can remember as being, you know, like a teenager, being very, very hungry every Sunday after church. But you have an advantage today. I already preached this message this morning at 9 o'clock. And, you know, when I, when I preach twice, the, the sermon tends to get shorter the second time. So you've, you have an advantage there. So what does it mean, I believe, in the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? Paul addresses that in the text that we read today. Talks about what the Holy Spirit means to us as Christians and what it means in the life of the church. So let's look at the first two verses of our scripture. Paul is telling us in these first two verses, verses 15 through 17, I guess that's three verses, telling us of the spirit of wisdom, that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of wisdom. He says, be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. It would seem that Paul is suggesting here that we've got a choice about being either wise or unwise. And I don't think we often look at at that wisdom as a choice. 
But it is. We can choose to be ignorant. We can choose, for instance, not to study for a test at school and fail the test. We can choose to be ignorant, or we can choose to be wise or informed. Paul is saying, be careful how you live. Be, don't be unwise, but be wise. And he tells us why. He says, making the most or making the best of every opportunity because the days are evil. Now, what's he talking about? Opportunity, evil. When Paul says the days are evil, if we literally translated what he said from the Greek, he would be not talking about days, he'd be talking about time. The times are evil. And Paul's not, Paul's not saying, when you have a bad day, call on the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about that kind of time. In Greek, that would be chronos. That's, that's uh, chronological time. But here he's using the word kairos, which talks about seasons, about the times of our life. And he's saying the season that we're in is evil. And what does he mean, evil? Well, he uses another word. It's poneros in Greek. And that word means calamitous, malicious, dangerous. So he's saying, be careful. The times are dangerous. There's a lot of resistance out there. It is chaotic and calamitous. Be careful. Be wise. He says, don't be foolish. The times of our greatest opportunities in life often are the most chaotic times in our life. Have you ever noticed that? It's not when things are going well. It's not when things are smooth in our lives, but it's when we're facing resistance, when life's falling apart, when things are chaotic, that we are forced to make changes, when the pain is too great to remain the same. But in that chaos, is a wonderful, powerful opportunity to change, to do something different, to have something better. In the chaos, we're led into a new way forward. And that's what the Christian life is about, and that's what Christian growth is about. Paul says, in these times, don't be foolish. Don't be ignorant understand. Now, nobody likes to be called a fool or foolish, but Paul's not mentioned words here. He said, you, you need to understand what's going on around you. He explains this further in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, when he says, a person without the Holy Spirit doesn't understand the things that come from the Spirit of God. They think they're foolish. Do you want to know when you are in the will of God? It's probably when people are not connected to Christ and to the church think you're foolish when they call you a fool. So people might say, why in the world, if you've got three weeks vacation, would you take one of those weeks and go on a mission trip somewhere? 
That doesn't make any sense. Well, why do you give all that money to the church anyway? Don't you have other things that you want to spend your money on? Or why in the world would you go to church, spend hours weaving little plastic bags together into a mat for homeless people? That's crazy. That's foolish. Why would you do that? Just pony up some money and buy them some mattresses or something. It doesn't make sense to them. Many times, as Christians, we face that kind of resistance that people don't understand, sometimes within our own families. I remember my son Josh one time. We were always going to church dinners, and we were always bringing something to share. And my son Josh said one day, why are you giving all our food away? And then if you try to raise your kids according to the scriptures and, and give them some value, sometimes they don't appreciate that either. And they make fun of you, and they say that's foolish, and they resist. But that's what we're called to do. The natural person does not understand the things of the Spirit. They think they're foolishness. Jesus promised to his disciples that he would send this wisdom. He said, I'm going to leave you. But I'm going to pray to the Father, and the Father is going to send you the Counselor, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Some people have trouble understanding the Bible. That's because they don't come to it full of the Spirit. That's because they don't time, take time to pray, to have their mind opened up to the things of the Spirit. But when you are able to do that, you will find that those scriptures become automatic in your life. They become a part of you. When you are in chaos, when you are facing resistance, when you are in pain, those scriptures come to you through the Holy Spirit that give you the direction that you need. You see, wisdom is not about knowledge. It is about purpose. It is about direction. Foolishness is living your life with no purpose and no direction. How are you ever going to get anywhere if you don't have a road map? How are you ever going to get anywhere if you cannot take direction? And guys, a lot of times we have a problem with that. Now, how many times my wife has told me on a trip that you're going in the wrong direction, and I'm adamant, no, I am not. I know what I'm doing, and sure enough, I need to stop and get directions. We resist that. But wisdom is about purpose. It is about direction. And that's what the Holy Spirit is to us. It is the spirit of wisdom. Paul also tells us in our next slide, and next scripture, that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of sobriety. Paul says... Do not get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. But he said, instead, be filled. Don't get, be filled. When he says, don't get, he is using an active verb. When we get drunk, it's something we do. We take the action. We buy the alcohol, we pour the drink, and we drink to excess, and we get drunk. We're doing it all. 
But when we're filled with the Spirit, that's not something we're doing. All we're doing is yielding. It is the Spirit that fills us. It is a passive verb. It is a passive action. We are submitting to and we are being filled. It's done to us. Now, there are some people that criticize the church and these beliefs, saying that, you know, if you're in the church, you're just really kind of a spiritual junkie. You may not use drugs. You may not get drunk on alcohol, but you are using, you know, the frenzy of the worship or, or the Holy Spirit, and you're just kind of like a substitute for getting drunk. I think that's probably what Karl Marx meant when he said that religion is the opiate of the people, but that's not so. Paul is not talking about a substitute for getting drunk. He's talking about being filled with the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not a liquid. The Holy Spirit is not a substance. The Holy Spirit is not an energy like electricity. The Holy Spirit is a person, and we have a relationship with a person. You know, Paul, if we were to rewind in this scripture text in chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 30 says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can be grieved, has feelings. Holy Spirit can feel joy. Holy Spirit can feel disappointment. Holy Spirit can feel loss. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. You know, alcohol doesn't have feelings. It causes them. Methamphetamine doesn't have feelings, can cause a lot of bizarre feelings and visions and all kinds of things. The Holy Spirit is not a substance, is not a liquid, is not an energy. It is a person, the third person of God Almighty, the Trinity, with whom we have a relationship. Now, some people, even in meditation and in religious belief, seek for what they call an altered state. It's like, I want to go to another dimension and get away from it all. And we'll see uh, monks going in Tibet up on a mountain, uh, spending years. Uh, we saw, saw that in church history and monasticism, people going out in the wilderness for long periods of time, and they're trying to escape. They're trying to get onto another dimension an altered state of consciousness. But that's not what the Holy Spirit does when it fills a person. If anything, it sharpens your focus on the here and the now. It sharpens your focus on what's going on with inside you and what's going on outside you and gives you some direction. There's a lot of misunderstanding about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And I guess, again, as a kid, I got some misdirection in this way, too. I was involved in a church that believed that first you got saved, and then you had to pray at the altar to get a second blessing, which then you got sanctified. And once you got sanctified, that kind of cleaned you all up. And then you had to pray and pray and pray till you got filled with the Holy Spirit. And the way you knew you got filled with the Holy Spirit is you had to speak in tongues. If you didn't speak in tongues, you weren't filled with the Holy Spirit. I remember one really, really dear man that I, I cared a lot about. He was an older guy. I was in my teens. And he'd been a Christian for a long time. 
but he didn't feel he'd ever been filled with the Holy Spirit. People told him he hadn't because he'd never spoken tongues. And every Sunday, he was at the altar, and he was begging God for that infilling of the Holy Spirit. And he was so discouraged and so despondent, and his whole life was about, I'm not yet good enough. Now, I don't want to speak badly about other churches, but I don't see it that way anymore. I don't understand the filling of the Holy Spirit that way. I believe that when we accept Christ, when we come into faith and He becomes our Savior, that is done by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are born again, as Jesus said to Nicodemus, by the Spirit that in our Apostles' Creed, we know that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, the bringer of life. The Holy Spirit indwells us immediately. Now, when Paul says, be filled, he's not talking about an event. He's not talking about a one time you receive this and there's an evidence of it. He uses the word in the present tense. He literally is saying, continuously be filled with the Spirit. Don't be filled just back then. Be filled now. Be filled every day. The life-giving power of the Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus dead, is available every day to bring life to you. Now, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, Paul says in our next scripture that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of fellowship and of joy. Paul begins by saying, speaking to one another. Did you know you were supposed to do that? Speak to one another? We don't get the Holy Spirit on a mountaintop and keep it for ourselves. It's there for a purpose. It binds us together. It brings us into a fellowship. We are to speak to one another in psalms and spiritual songs. And when we sing those songs, we're supposed to sing them from our hearts unto the Lord. And sometimes we get that wrong, too. Now, I like good music. You like good music? Do we have good music at Faith Westwood? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I love it. I've always loved the music here. You know, I remember when Lois and Linda used to be playing music all the time and still do on occasion. Loved their ability and their talent in the spirit. I loved Drew this morning. Wasn't Drew great with the cello and the young people that were singing? I love the cello. But we've got to keep a focus on the fact that when we create music, it's supposed to be music from the heart and it's not a performance. I was involved with a church one time where everybody thought they were performers during worship and they used to spat with each other if somebody got more time singing for the congregation than someone else or playing their instrument. It is not about that. It's about making music from our hearts. And it doesn't depend on our skill level. Have you ever stood beside somebody singing that couldn't carry a tune? Can it be distracting? Yes. But look more deeply into that person. 
because many times they are singing with everything they got and they really don't care if I like it or not. They're not singing to me. They're not singing for the congregation. They're singing to the Lord and they're opening their hearts and they're making music and it's full of joy. If you take your hymnals and you, you would look at the beginning of the hymnal, you'd see that John Wesley gives some directions from singing. And in those directions, he says, don't sing like you're half dead. Don't sing like you're half asleep. And don't worry about your voice. You know, don't be afraid of your voice. Sing out. You know, keep an eye toward God as you're singing and sing to him. Don't sing for yourself or any other creature on earth, but sing unto the Lord. The psalmist David said, come. Let us sing for joy to the Lord. You know, I, how many of you here are married? Anybody here just engaged? Yeah, there's some engaged people here. Do you have a song? Do you and your, your significant other have a special song called Our Song? How about you old-timers that have been married a long time? You've got a song. Do you remember the song? I'm probably going to put you on the spot. If you don't, you might be in trouble after this service if you don't remember it. But we often have a song. I remember Stella and I, our song. It was Nat and Natalie Cole, Unforgettable. That was our song. I went out, and I bought the sheet music, and I sang that to Stella, poor woman. Poor woman, but she liked it because it was coming from it was coming from my heart. It was our song. That's what God wants us to do in worship. That's what God wants us to do in our singing. We got to have our song, our song with the Holy Spirit, our song with the Lord that we are filled with. Last thing, and I got to be done here. The Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a spirit of gratitude. Paul said, always giving thanks to God, the Father, for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not grumbling all the time. Not complaining all the time. There's so much of that in life anyway. At work, lots of chaos, lots of changes. People are always moaning and complaining about everything. I've got a man that works with that I'm working with now at Sienna Francis as his counselor. And I was doing an anger management group. And he comes to me after the session and he says, Chuck, he said, I don't know about managing this anger, I kind of like it. And he had been a man come straight out of prison. He was a big man, he was a violent man. And he said, you know, I really get high when I'm in a fight and when I am assaulting someone. I'm actually enjoying that. I don't know if I want to give that up or not. And he was being honest. He wasn't trying to be difficult. He was telling me where he was coming from. And so a few sessions later, he comes back up to me and he says, Chuck, he said, I don't know what to do. He said, I can't give this up. But he said, I'm running everybody out of my life. I got nobody left. Nobody wants to be around me. They're afraid of me. I got to change. I've got to do something. So I began to work with him and, and kind of unravel why he got that way and, and the kind of terrible violence that he had undergone in his life and how he got hooked on that, that feeling 
of being in control by being violent, and he had the power to do that. So he comes to me last week, and he says, Chuck, I'm mad again. I said, what are you mad about? He says, well, we're in this men's group, and it's a group of people in treatment, men in treatment, and they get together and kind of discuss where they're at. And he says, they're always moaning and complaining and criticizing. He said, here they are. They get free treatment. They get an opportunity to stay out of prison, to make some changes in their life, and all they can do is complain about it. He said, it made me so mad because I'm so grateful for this place and what I've been given. He said, I had to get up and walk out. I said, well, next time, instead of getting up and walking out, tell them about it. Tell them what's upsetting you. Tell them that you are grateful and you don't like to hear this because change, recovery, anything in life always begins with gratitude. Not what we don't have, but what is available to us. Sometimes that's difficult. It's been a difficult year for me and for Stella in ways. We lost Stella's mother this year. I lost probably my closest friend this year. At work, things have gotten increasingly more dangerous. Three of my very close co-workers were stabbed this past year, all at the same time, one of them taken hostage with a knife held to her throat. The police came in and, and shot the man that was holding them hostage there. Thank God these women are working today. They had the courage to come back. They were grateful for the opportunity to serve, and they continue to serve. We've talked a lot today about floods. I was getting ready to go see my brother in Ohio on March the 12th, Tuesday. I was packing up, preparing, looked at the weather report, told me the flood was coming on my property down in Missouri where I garden and have a camping trailer. Had to postpone my trip, had to go down there, spend two days taking things out of there. And the next day after that, when I'm on my way to Ohio, I actually drove through the first flood waters on I-29 and barely got out of there. And I find today, as I look at the videos of the area, my property is probably under somewhere between eight and 10 foot of water. Got three buildings there that are totally submerged under the water. And I look at that and I am told by this scripture that I have to give thanks. Give thanks for everything. And that is foolish, is it not? Does that make sense that I would to be, to be grateful for that kind of loss? Ah, the days are evil. But there's always opportunity in the loss. There are other things I can do with my time and my resources. I can spend more time with my wife. I can spend more time in ministry. I can get closer to God in this. Isaiah 43 sums it up for us. It says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. We're grateful for everything because we have the Holy Spirit. 
the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of sobriety, the spirit of fellowship, joy, and especially the spirit of gratitude. Amen. Will you stand? And how about singing from your heart? You know, you might, I mean, how many of you intend to sing this last song? Anybody intend to sing? Okay. What if you raised your other hand? And what if you turned your face to God? And what if you sang from your heart the joy of the Lord? Amen.